Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 53 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. With me right now is Felix Rodriguez, a retired paramilitary operations officer with the Central Intelligence Agency. Felix took part in many of the pivotal events of the Cold War, including covert operations in Cuba, the Vietnam War, Laos, support to the Contras in Nicaragua, and most famously, the hunt for Che Guevara in Bolivia in 1967. I've been hoping to speak to Felix since I started this podcast, so I'm very happy that we've finally made contact and are able to talk about the incredible life he's led today. In fact, I planned for a 90-minute interview, but we ended up talking for three hours straight. So this interview will be broken into two separate episodes, and the second episode will debut on Monday, July 11th, 2022. And if you don't want to wait that long for more of the interview, we've also uploaded a bonus episode to Patreon for all of my subscribers there. It's more than 30 additional minutes that doesn't appear in either of the two episodes that we're releasing here, and it covers in-depth Che Guevara's final hours as Felix interviewed him and his fate was decided. Felix, thank you for taking the time to for this interview today. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Wonderful, wonderful. I think everyone listening to this episode at this point is just as excited to hear from you as I am. I want to start out, though, by going all the way back to Cuba before the revolution. I come from a very small town in Cuba called Santi Espiritus, which is one of the original towns that was founded in Cuba, even much older than Havana, and it's in the middle of the island. So I went through there from 1941 until 1952. I used to go to La Salle School in Santi Espiritus, those first few grades. Then when 1952, Batista took over, he made my uncle the Secretary of Public Works. So he was single, so he asked my mother to set up his home in Havana. So I moved with them to Havana. I spent one year in La Salle of Marianao, and then one year in the Havana Military Academy. Then in 1954, actually, my uncle offered me if I wanted to go to school in the United States, and I selected to do that. So I remember going to the U.S. Embassy with my mom, and we had a lady there who showed us the different alternative of a school in the state. I wanted to see a snow. So we turned out to go to Pennsylvania. So I finally went there to a school called Perkyom and Preparatory School in a little town called Pennsburg, Pennsylvania, which is about 70 miles from Allentown and then 41 miles from Philadelphia. And that's where I started my, my schooling in there. Hmm. And how old were you when you arrived in Philadelphia? I was 14 years old and we got seventh and eighth grade in there. And then I spent four years in high school. We finally graduated in 1960. But I interrupted my high school in there in 1959 because my parents went to Mexico on vacation in 1958. So I, I went from a school to meet them there in 1958 in December. And then we went to wait for New Year's Eve in Mexico, which we did. And then I was supposed to fly to Havana from there. But that's when Batista left, Fidel took over. So... I never got to go to Havana. Then I came back to the school 
in Pennsylvania. Then later on, I went back to visit them in 1959, and there was a recruiting member of the Cuban army who was recruiting people for what's named the Anti-Communist Legion of the Caribbean in the Dominican Republic. And his name was Captain Cortez from the Cuban army. So I, I actually, I guess one of the questions you have is, you know, how I got involved in this. And the, the thing was, I saw the television when they were conducting the executions in Cuba and the trials of the people they executed. And one that really impacted me was the trial that was going on against the major of the Cuban army, Jesus Sosa Blanco. And it was really a, a mockery of, of law. You can look at it. Here they bring this guy who's supposed to, to point out Sosa Blanco killing his brother. And when this farmer arrived in there, he started pointing at the prosecutor and telling the prosecutor that he killed his brother. They had to tell him it was the guy next to him. So it was really a ridiculous type of, of things. Hmm. And that really, Cuba never had firing a squad before. It never existed in our law. You know, it really impacted me. I thought something had to be done. So when this man came, I was recruited and I went to the Dominican Republic, arriving there on the 1st of July of 1959. Wow. Okay. How many guys went with you? Were there, I mean, was it anyone that you knew from school that went along as well? No, no, no. There was none from a school. There were just some military people that had left Cuba and they were living in a very cheap hotel where my parents were staying called the Ontario Hotel in Mexico City. So actually, there were about three officers that were in the Cuban army who went eventually to the Dominican Republic. And I went by myself in that I was one of the youngest ones. I was 17 and I turned out 18 when I got to the Dominican Republic on the 4th of July. Uh, we were being trained in a naval base called Calderas in the Dominican Republic. And they, they we were actually about 100 Cubans. There were 150 Spaniards. There were 50 Yugoslavian, 50 Greek and 50 of mixed nationalities that we were being trained there, eventually to go and fight against Castro in Cuba. That was the first thing that ever took place against Castro. And inside, they had a movement called La Rosa Blanca, that the Diaz-Balar uh, father of the two congressmen that were here uh, were the president of, the, of that movement against Castro in 1959. And we were part of that. Hmm. Okay, so initially, there's no U.S. government involvement in this, in the Anti-Communist League. Is that right? Nothing. This is a Dominican and Cuban initiative? Right. Nothing at all. Strictly was Cubans involved in. Okay. I see. And were you going to go as a, I mean, were you just going to be like a, like a fighter? I mean, like a, like an infantryman? Is that what you were training for yeah, an invasion? I was, actually, they call us legionnaire. I was a legionnaire with no rank. Eventually I became the head of a squad in there uh, that had some Germans involved in my squad and some Spaniards in there. And that was the first venture against Castro, because there was, if you recall, there was a Cuban mayor called Eloy Gutierrez Menoyo from a Spanish ancestor. His brother had been killed in an attack to the presidential palace trying to kill Batista before that. And this guy was a Cuban mayor from the Escambray Mountain, and he claimed that he had taken over the city of Trinidad in a, in a rebel operation against Fidel Castro. And he asked for our people in Dominican Republic to support him with weapons and personnel. So they, we agreed to do that. There was one of the C-46 planes that Batista had used to escape Cuba that was stationed right there in the Dominican Republic in San Isidro Air Force Base of the Dominican Republic. 
And then there was about five who were supposed to go there with weapons and all of that to support uh, that operation. So a helicopter arrived in, in, in Caldera's base from the Dominican Air Force Base in San Isidro. And there were five of us who were supposed to go. One of them was a, a two Cuban uh, lieutenants, one Lieutenant Rivero from Santa Clara, another one Lieutenant Rodriguez, and there was one member from the French Legion who was Spanish origin. Maribran. And then there was Roberto Martin Perez, who used to be a policeman in Cuba. And his father was, was in the helicopter also. Now, they were supposed to stay in Cuba with all the weapons to train them. My mission was, I was only 18 years old, my mission was to accompany the plane, to be able to service the plane in there, to put gasoline in there or oil if it was necessary, and then fly back to the Dominican Republic in the plane. I wasn't supposed to stay there. Hmm. But then Roberto Martin Perez's father, who was very close to my family, we were sitting already inside the helicopter. He came in and said, look, my son has more experience than you have. He's about 70 years older than I was. And say, one of you have to come with me when I go. So my, my son will go and you come, you get out of the helicopter. So he pulled me out of the helicopter. And actually the guy who took my place, who was a, a captain in the Cuban army, he was killed defending the planes in Trinidad. And Roberto Martin Perez uh, spent the next 28 years in a Cuban prison. So it was oh, extremely wow. wow. That would have been unbelievable. That would have been your first brush with the Cuban military, and it ended so terribly for those guys if you hadn't been pulled right. off that helicopter then. Right. Wow, that's incredible. So did you actually go into Cuba with the with the Anti-Communist League, with this group, or did that come later? No, 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 no. It was only the plane arrived there, and it was, it, it was not – it was a setup. They were not actually against Fidel, so all of them were captured. And like I said, this one, this captain who defended the plane was killed on the spot, and the other people went to prison. And of course, the plane was confiscated in Cuba. And from there on, you know, eventually, the Anti-Communist Legion was terminated by Trujillo. So it was the end of it. I did contract the hepatitis. So in December of 1959, came back to Miami, recovered a little bit, then went back, back to school. I finally was able to graduate from high school in 1960, in June of 1960. Then I, well, I actually was accepted at the University of Miami for engineering. But then when I got to Miami, I learned there was something somewhere in South America to do something against Castro. So instead of going to the university, I decided you know, to join that, which happened to be the Bay of Pigs and the Assault Brigade 25 of 6, which at the time had no name at all. Wow. And did they, did you hear about this through the grapevine or did they approach you directly because of your previous experience? No, no. When I was, when I arrived in Miami, they were friends of mine who okay. knew about this operation in, in Central America. Well, we didn't know what it was. It was somewhere in South America, really. Then, you know, we, we were recruited in there and then we flew to Guatemala. Now, one thing that I like to make, you know, a lot of people question why was the CIA involved in a military landing? when the CLA, I, CIA actually have no expertise whatsoever in military landing. Mm -hmm. Everybody thought the Pentagon was the one who was to, put, to be, this, you know, conduct that type of an operation. And the simple answer was it was never meant to be a military landing. This operation was conceived under the Eisenhower administration. President Eisenhower in 1960, early 1960, was briefed that Cuba was planning to go into a different phase of relationship with the Soviet Union and they were planning to bring offensive missiles into the island. So the CIA commissioned, uh, the president commissioned the CIA to destabilize the Castro region. 
And the original concept was not an invasion per se. It was to promote a guerrilla warfare in the Escambray, who already had hundreds of guerrilla operating in that mountain in the center of Cuba, actually very close to my hometown of Santi Espiritu. Ah, right. So they, they, they sent a, a colonel who actually was graduated from West Point called Napoleon Valeriano was his real name. He used the name with us of Vallejo. He was from Filipino origin, and he had been very successful in the war against the communist hawk in the Philippines. Now, his idea was completely different. Now, he created, when members of the brigade were there, actually, when I arrived, there were about 200 in the training camps. When I left for Panama for additional training, there was only 600 on December of 1960. So what this colonel did, he separated the what we call later the brigade. At that time, they had no name. Three groups, what they call the great teams, black teams, or what they call the special force of the brigade, the black teams, and the occupational force. Now, the great teams or special force of the brigade, there was a group of us. There was about 90 of us, and they were pretty young. The oldest one had, we call him El Abuelo. The grandfather, because he was about 33 years old. <laughs> Most of us was wearing between 80 and 18 and 22, 23 years old. I was 19 at the time. So we trained intelligence, communication, everything. And our mission was to land in Cuba way before anything happened. Well, that time, nobody knew it was going to be an invasion. Now, our mission was to support the internal resistance in Havana and different of the most important cities throughout the island, six different provinces that they had at the time. And also to be able to start sending people from the cities into the Escambray Mountain. And once they had an influx of a lot of these uh, civilian into the Escambray Mountain, they will, according to need, they will display these black teams that were 25 men each, and they were highly trained in explosive demolition, in weaponry, in maritime reception and air reception to be able to receive weapons from the from the United States or from whatever, from Central America, using airdrops and maritime using the boats. And then the current, then this, this thing will go in, they start producing all of these weapons, training this guerrilla. And once we have enough guerrillas in place that they were able to secure a, a small territory, it had to be a small, it didn't have to be big, but an area where Fidel could not come in, then what they call the occupational force, which is the rest of the brigade later on was called brigade, came into the area with a very powerful radio station, a civilian government, and they were going to go on the air promoting, a, they will be within a year, they will have democratic elections in Cuba with a civilian government at the time. Hmm. That will be then recognized by the United States, the Organization of American State, and that will be the end of capture. 99% American troops, maybe 1% Latin American troops, and that was it. Now that whole until November, of 1960, all right? That's when election took place. Now, President Kennedy had been as very as strong against Nixon, telling the Nixon administration, Eisenhower administration, they were not doing enough to actually liberate Cuba from communism. Now, of course, Nixon in the debate could not tell that we already had people in Guatemala to be able to do that, specifically to overthrow Fidel Castro. Mm, of course. So when the president was confronted that there was a group of so many Cubans in Central America, he had to take a decision either to continue with the operation or terminate it. Now, once the president is elected, really the other administration become a lame dog. They don't take any decision of any importance. Then it belongs, even though he had not become president yet, he's the one who takes control of foreign policy, especially in something 
so significant as invading Cuba. So the president decided to continue with the operation, but he didn't want to have a operation that was conceived and run by the Republicans. So he decided to continue, but he completely disbanded the black teams. And the idea was, the first operation was to take over the city of Trinidad. And to me, that was an excellent choice because the city of Trinidad is on the south coast of Cuba. It's very close to the port of Casilda, where the brigade didn't have to land like they did at the Bay of Pig. They just had the big boat to get right near to the pier and just walk into the land in there. Then it was right next to the Escambray Mountain. If anything went wrong, our people were going to the Escambray Mountain and join the guerrillas that were free. A lot of them were in that time there. Also, there were a hospital between Trinidad and the Escambray, right in the mountain called Topes de Collante that Batista had built for people with respiratory problems. And that was housing at that time about 2,000 guerrillas that were captured, which meant that we had already 2,000 people right there who knew how to use weapons. And we were bringing with us 10,000 additional rifles to be able to distribute to the people that we thought was going to be joining us. Hmm. And then there was a runway that was going to be expanded. And then our B-26 would be able to operate right from there. And we were bringing on the boat fuel for the boat, rockets, bombs, and everything to be able to operate from Cuban land. And Trinidad is far enough from Havana that the Fidel Castro T-33 jet plane could not fly there and return with the same tank of fuel. So they would not be able to use those planes to attack us. Now, the Bay of Pig was much closer, so they could do that. They would come with jet and back and forth. And that fall until about the very end of September. Then, unfortunately, some advisor of President Kennedy told him that it was very difficult to deny American participation because it was a city. There was going to be a lot of press in the city, which is ridiculous. Nobody could believe that a group of exiles would be able to amaze tanks, planes, troops on that, that amount of weapon and not be the United States involved. Everybody knew the United States was going to be involved for an operation of this magnitude. But they convinced the president, so they discarded the Trinidad and they decided to go to the Bay of Pig with an invasion. And the reason they picked up the Bay of Pig because it was a good area, uh, very small cities around that area, not many population in there. It had only two roads of access. So if we control the air and we land in there and take over and control the air for a few days, that will be enough to set up the provisional government, bring the radio station and do what was going to be done in the Escambray in a shorter period of time. Now, to be able to be successful for that operation, definitely we had to control the air. So the first two airstrikes that took place before the invasion they took out 90% of Castro's Air Force. But still they had left some T-33 jet trainers, which is no match to a B-26, it's a light bomber, and T-33 are jet. I mean, it's, it's like uh, fighting a, a lion against a tie-down monkey. It's ridiculous. And uh, we did not... There was supposed to be a, an attack, the last one, with all of our planes, 16 B-26s, to completely eliminate Castro's Air Force. Now, the, the Kennedy administration was telling the world that these two airstrikes that took place against Cuban targets were defecting pilots from the Cuban Air Force. And that's why they painted our plane with the FAR, Fuerza Aérea Revolucionaria, you know, mm -hmm. the insignias of the Cuban Air Force B-26. Cuba had B-26s. And we were giving B-26s from the Alabama National Guard. But there was a big difference. Their B-26s were a little bit older, 
and the nose of the Cuban B-26 was plastic, and the machine gun were on the on the wings, okay, and the rocket was on the wing. Our B-26s had a metal nose. It had 850 caliber machine gun in the nose, <clears throat> and the rocket and the bomb will go under the wings. So it was a completely different configuration. At that time, on the first attack, they were able to shut down one of our B-26s. So here you have Adelaide Stevens at the United Nations telling the world that those were defective planes from the Cuban Air Force. And here come the Cuban ambassador, Raul Roa, with pictures from both planes, from the plane that they shut down, that clearly showed 850 caliber machine gun in the nose, and the Cuban plane that were plastic nose. Hmm. So Nick, uh, uh, Stevens had never been really briefed for the administration. He, really, he was also telling the world because he was told <coughs> that they were planes that were defecting. So when he was confronted and the administration told him that indeed what Raul Roy was saying was right, then he told the administration, unless they put a stop to the airstrike, he will resign to the UN because he couldn't lie to the world. Wow. Do you, do you think so that, that the original was, plan know, had a lot more so chance that, of succeeding? So that was, that was then, when they stopped the, the airstrike, that's when the invasion landed. If Fidel controlled the air and they were able to sink the first day, <clears throat> the Houston was bringing all the ammunition, all the rocket, the radio station, everything. And they did not have a contingency plan to supply the brigade. So in the first 24 hours, the brigade fought bravely. They took every single position that was assigned to them in the military plan. And then on the second day, they extended the ammunition for one day for, for 48 hours. And then on the third day, there was no, no weapons, no ammunition at all. And they did not surrender. They had to go into the swamps and eventually... 95, 98% of them were captured. That was the end of the Bay of Peak, what is called the big fiasco of the Bay of Peak. Oh, yeah, incredible story. It really is. It's such a defining moment of the 20th century and the Cold War. So it sounds like the initial plan that you mentioned had a better chance probably of succeeding until the administration, Kenny administration, a lot of non-military types got involved in, in kind of micromanaging it. What do you think about that? Absolutely. That's exactly what happened. The other one would have taken a longer period of time, but it was more secure. We definitely would have been able to overthrow Fidel Castro with the other plan. Wow. So now I understand that you you went down to Guatemala, of course, but you actually went into Cuba earlier than the brigade did, right? You went in with a small team? Yeah. When they had what we called, you know, the special forces of the brigade or the great, the great teams, black teams, our group was about 90 people, only 36, less than 40 actually entered Cuba before the invasion, okay? In December, well, first of all, in November, we were used by the Guatemalan government to put down a revolt of army people that was conspiring against President Indigo La Fuente. And they they were actually instigated by the Cuban intelligence, Cuban government in Puerto Barrios. So they used brigade members to go in there. I was one of the planes that went in there and were B-26, and then finally they gave up. And then our infiltration team were moved in December, middle of December, to Panama for additional training. We were trained with uh, military equipment, especially Soviet equipment, because we were going to be dealing in the city with weapons, mainly Soviet Union. So we were made familiar with the AK-47, the Chinese submachine gun, the RPG. So we trained all of that in Guatemala. Hmm. Then we spent New Year's Eve actually in Guatemala, and then... In January, we were taking and flowing from there to Miami, and then we were putting a uh, motel, which was in the middle of nowhere, 
in the Homestead area was a big swimming pool. And from that place, that's when they started to infiltrate the teams in Cuba. We came to Cuba in three different ways. One of them, well, the first one to actually arrive were a few of our people who came in through the regular airport. Okay, they came in with the cover that they were going to a school in different United States universities. Now they got them to go to those universities to be able to learn the transportation, the location, everything in case they were questioning about that. So they actually went to the airport with their real name, coming back from Cuba, from the United States, claiming that they were going to come to help the revolution. And that was a small group of people that entered that way. One team only parachuted into the Kamaway province, about five of them. And the rest of us, 90% of us entered clandestinely by boat. We had a reception team between Havana and Kamaway. We were in Perdón, between Havana and Matanzas. And they were waiting for us. We arrived in there. And then we had to walk about five miles to the main highway. And then there was safe car from the MRR movement to pick us up and took off to safe houses in Havana. And then we start working with the resistance in the whole six provinces of Cuba at the time. Oh, wow. So you had no problems at all landing. Like you, you had a totally safe and uneventful landing when you first went in then, right? Right. Okay. I landed in, in late February and I was taken to Havana. Then I, I, I saw the head of the resistance, Francisco, who was the commander of all the resistance in there. I was head of the infiltration team for Las Villas province. That's where Santa Clara is now. And they wanted to do an uprising in the area, which is on the other side of the Escambray Mountains. Okay. Now that area is, is, is only hills. It's really not mountains. So they, their idea was to have a guerrilla in there. So when the tank came and the invasion was coming in to be able to break the main highway to cut it in half. But the weapon never arrived from the outside. Even I came out for three days and we were not able to bring the weapons in. So, you know, that was a fiasco. We couldn't do that. And then when the invasion took place, none of us at all were advised of the incoming invasion. We were wow. surprised. We were actually learned about the invasion from the Cuban radio. Hmm. On the 17th of April, I was in Havana. I had a lady who was driving me. I was supposed to go to Guadalajara to pick up another member of my team and then go to Santa Clara, who was my, where I was the head of that, of that province. But then that morning, that's when hell broke loose in Havana. You could hear all this military music and calling all these different military units to report to their different bases. <clears throat> so, you know, that day we learned about the Bay of Pignal. It was a disaster because Castro very intelligently, what he did was, <clears throat> in every big cities, including Havana, he will go house by house, block by block, and surrounded with troops. And if you were males, within, you know, military, and you were between 15, 16 year old to, to older, unless you were 90 years old, and you were not assigned to a military unit, even though they had, maybe you were a member of the Communist Party, but if you were not assigned to a military unit, they would pick you up and put you in what we could call a concentration camp temporarily. They had like baseball field in Havana with high fences that they put up to 250,000 people in there. They lay the theater, uh, Blanquita Theater, which is capacity for 5,000 people, 5,500 people we put in there. So actually, he was, he was able to completely dismember the internal resistance who was very well organized. Now, a lot of the people that they captured during the Bay of Pig were later released because they had no idea who they had. But it had the effect that it completely destroyed 
the capability of all of these uh, clandestine units that were operating in Havana and other main cities. Why were they able to take them down so quickly? Were those groups already thoroughly infiltrated, or did they just pick up everyone? No, they just went house by house. Nobody was infiltrated, really. They just went house by house. Let's say if I was there, I was 19 or 20 years old. Like I was 19 when I was there. Are you assigned to a military unit? No, they, they don't care. They pick you up and put you in a temporary concentration. Oh, boy. That's why they completely destroyed the, the internal resistance. They pick up, I would say, about 90% of the resistance were captured and putting um, and 90% of them were released because they had no idea who they had after after the but they were able to completely disarticulate the operational capability that we had in the cities. Hmm. Man, that's unfortunate. Prior to that, how strong was the resistance? Did they have a real chance of overturning Castro's new government? Yes, I would say yes. It was very 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 strong. They were able to conduct a lot of sabotage in the cities, they were very well organized, but unfortunately that happened. Actually, I was very lucky because the lady who, who was driving me, we were hiding in an apartment in Havana, and her father was very close to the Spanish embassy. So the head of intelligence of the Spanish embassy, who called himself the head of the propaganda of the embassy, he knew where she was staying. And he went to her because he knew that they were coming through that area to do that thing, to surround the whole block and, you know, taking everybody in prison. So before they arrived to the apartment building where I was, he took her and I went along with her to his apartment. And he got diplomatic immunity in Edificio Somaya. It's an apartment building near the ocean. They're beautiful and tall building. And that's where I survived. Actually, when we were coming down the elevator into his diplomatic car, it was a Chevrolet, 1956 Chevrolet with diplomatic plate. We were just getting into the car when there was a militia truck pulling right behind us and surrounding the building and taking everybody in prison. So I spent over a week in his home. Then he told me I could not stay any longer because another eight people was hiding in his apartment building. And they finally got us to be accepted in the different embassies. So I went to the Venezuelan embassy as a political exile. And I spent the next five and a half months in the Venezuelan embassy until I got a safe conduct. And I left Cuba on the 13th of September of 1961 for Venezuela, where I spent two weeks. Then in the beginning of October of that year, I was in Miami. And within two weeks, I was back in Cuba like seven times, you know, bringing the people and all of that to, to an area that I had kept in contact with them as an infiltration team. So was it different coming back after all that time? I mean, was there security on the on the shores? Was it was it much better after the first attempted invasion? No, no, no. We, we, we could be with, with no problem. We never had any problem going back and forth. Huh. Wow, and you were bringing weapons and and that sort of thing to the remaining resistance members, right? Weapons to give it to some of the resistant people, bringing teams, infiltration team that went in to operate with intelligence purpose at that time. Mm, okay, how how successful were those teams? Were they able to accomplish their missions? Yeah, they were they were able to bring a lot of information from inside Cuba. Unfortunately, one of the guys that I infiltrated that was Manuel Guillo Castellano. He was captured and he was executed by firing a squad. But they continued to operate after that was, then later it was called Operation Mangoose. It was actually the continuation of what basically intelligence operation into Cuba. Like in 1965, I went with a team into the, at the Isle of Pine, what they call the Isla de la Juventud, the little island south of Cuba. And we went with a team to photograph a Soviet 
a submarine base. So I think, think about a week inside, took pictures of that, and came back again. But it was just for intelligence purpose. It was not really an offensive operation anymore. Huh. Okay. So there were some other attacks going on as part of Mongoose, weren't there? I know about the, the guys in the swift boats, right, that were operating off the coast. I was part of that. Now, let me tell you, there's a lot of people in the brigade that believe that President Kennedy was a traitor, okay? And they hate him. I have a completely different view about President Kennedy because mm. I had the experience that other people didn't have, okay? I believe President Kennedy was a young president, very ill-advised, with very little experience. And we pay the price, all right? But I don't think he's a traitor at all. And I think he paid with his life what he was planning to do. You know, after he took full responsibility for the Bay of Pigs, what he did was he created the incentive to American corporations for tax exemption to be able to get enough money to pay the ransom for, to bring the brigade out of prison, which he did. So the brigade came out of prison in December of 1962. We also flew. Pan American donated the plane for free, and they flew up from a Cuban military base to Humpton Air Force Base into the United States, the whole brigade, with a few exceptions. Now, members of my infiltration team were not part of that negotiation because we did not land them militarily, and they actually view us as a spy because we came in clandestine into Cuba. So my infiltration team sustained four executions. Four of them were executed by firing a squad. One of them was killed defending a safe house. About 14 of them were captured and spent the next 18 years in a Cuban prison before they were released. They were not released to the brigade. And there was one brigade member that spent 25 years in prison that Castro had a personal grouch against uh, against him. I was not aware of that. Did he return to the United States after that or stay in Cuba? Yeah, no, he he returned after 25 years. He lives here in Miami now. My gosh. He and his wife. We met with President Kennedy at the Orange Bowl in December of 1960, the end of December of 1962. Actually, I was able to shake President Kennedy's hand when he came to say hello to the survivor members of the infiltration team. I remember telling him we shall return. And then he promised that day that he will return the flag brigade that was given to him in custody very soon in a free Havana. And I think he really meant that. And it did cost his life. Now, what he did after that was he opened the Armed Forces of the United States for the brigade officer. So in, in February of 1963, 212 officers of the brigade went to Fort Benning, Georgia, to be trained as a second lieutenant in the United States Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps. In all four different uniforms, okay? I was in the Army. I went in as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. Hmm. And we trained there for about eight months. Okay. At the same time, he opened the Armed Forces of the United States for Cubans. So a lot of brigade members joined the, 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 the training camps in Fort Jackson, for example, for troops. Not only brigade members, but Cubans from the Miami area. There were thousands of Cubans who joined uh, the Armed Forces of the United States. The idea was to use them as troops and we as officers to invade Cuba again. Now, unfortunately, President Kennedy was assassinated in late 1963. And that was everything, you know, took a completely different course. Bobby Kennedy was very strongly in support of our operation. Now, before the president was assassinated, he approved a covert operation to overthrow Fidel Castro. And we had bases in Costa Rica and Nicaragua. In Nicaragua, we had a naval base and we had a base 
for training commandos and training guerrillas in Nicaragua. And in Costa Rica, we had a base to train the infiltration teams and also a communication site. Now, after the president was assassinated, they continued with the operation for respect to the assassinated president because Bobby Kennedy was still the attorney general. Bobby Kennedy was the direct contact between our team and the administration. Then, later on, that operation was terminated by Johnson in 1965, and members that were officers in the brigade were told they actually sent Joseph B. Califano Jr., who was a special assistant to the president, first with Kennedy and then with Johnson. And Joseph B. Califano Jr. told our people in, in, in the army and the different of the armed forces of the United States that the promise of President Kennedy to liberate Cuba died with President Kennedy, that the administration no longer was upholding oh, wow. the promise of the president to liberate Cuba. If they wanted to stay and make a career of the armed forces of the United States, they were welcome to it. But we know that no longer there was a commitment by the administration to liberate Cuba. Hmm. So some of our people left, they went to civilian life, and some of them stayed in the armed forces. You got to the rank of colonel, most of them. General Oliva became a two-star general of the National Guard, in Washington National Guard. But there was no longer the commitment of the president. And when the president was assassinated, our team went with some of his closer advisors to pay the condolence to Bobby Kennedy. And the first thing that Bobby Kennedy told him was, my brother had two big enemies. One was the mafia and the other one was Fidel Castro. I believe the last one, was Fidel Castro was the one who assassinated him. And I believe it's so also. Oh, you think it was Castro was involved? Absolutely. You have to take, for example, in consideration that Oswald went to Mexico and he was in the Cuban embassy for four hours before he went to assassinate the president. And he was very close to the Cuban cause, but there's a lot of movies of Oswald in New Orleans advocating for the lifting of the embargo in support of the Cuban government. Now, there was also a Cuban captain at the time, Fabian Escalante, who was a sharpshooter, spoke fluent English, who was in Dallas on that day that the president was assassinated. And he was taken out in a private plane to Mexico back into Cuba. He later became a general in Cuba. I think he's retired now. And there was, actually, I remember reading in the paper in a very small article from the Herald that President Johnson advisor mentioned the fact that the FBI had told the president the participation of the Cuban government in the assassination of the president. And it was covered up because of national security consideration. If at that time, the U.S. administration would have learned officially that there was a foreign government, like the government of Cuba, involved in the assassination of the U.S. president, he had no choice but to invade Cuba. And they knew that there were still about three or four offensive missiles inside Cuba that were arrived there before that famous show when Khrushchev was bringing a bunch of missiles in boat and had to be returned during the October crisis. Before the October crisis, he was able to infiltrate two or three offensive nuclear missiles into Cuba, which are probably still there, but the fuck, they are obsolete by now because they are pretty old. And the people talk about the Kennedy-Khrushchev treaty now. When Khrushchev brought down the ships and they signed a treaty that the United States said that they were not going to invade Cuba, they had different kinds of criteria that had to be fulfilled. One of them, and very important, was that there would be a United States inspector to go into Cuba to verify that they had taken out the three or four offensive missiles that we knew they were already inside. And Fidel refused to allow any inspector to go into the island to, to verify that. And therefore, the treaty was invalid. That's why Kennedy 
opened up this training camp in Central America for us. And his brother and our people were really, they were very close in preparing the assassination of Fidel Castro in Cuba. Hmm. My gosh. Yeah, that makes a compelling case, certainly. So after they determined that the invasion, the second invasion would not go forward, did you leave the army at that point or did you continue on in? No, I left the army when our team asked me to leave the army to go with him to this operation in Central America. I became the head of his communication. Actually, when he came to me, I, I was finishing the course with all my friends in Fort Benning. I was supposed to go to Fort Hallover in Virginia for intelligence training. So our team asked, asked me and said, look, the last time the Americans were the ones who controlled the operation of the Bay of Pig, we had not said, which is true. Our people didn't participate any in the planning of the Bay of Pig. Now he told me, this time we are going to be the one controlling everything. We are going to receive weapons, whatever we request, we're going to get it from this administration. And we will be taking the responsibility. So I asked him, what guarantee do I have that President Kennedy is really behind me, this operation? And he told me, what guarantee do you need? I said, well, you want me to leave the army, go to a motel and be trained by the CIA, tell the president, whoever your contact is in the administration, that they should give me the training in the U.S. Army uniform here in Fort Benning. And if they do that, I'll resign my commission and go with you. So he told me, okay, go and see your supervisor and ask him you want to go to a special communication training. Of course, my supervisor was a major of Puerto Rican origin, Major Angel Torre. And he had no idea what I was talking about or went to see him. So I went to see Major Torre and said, here, Lieutenant Rodriguez, I'd like to change my... Uh, my training for special communication training. Now, the mayor looked at me and said, look, Lieutenant, first of all, as far as I know, there is no such thing as special communication training. But if it were, it's too late to change. You're going to go to intelligence training. Then he asked me, who told me? And I told him I could not tell him. He threw me out of his office. All right. So we graduated from that training. We came to Miami for two weeks before we went back to be reassigned to a different post that we were going to. And then a week before, before uh, after I arrived here, I got a call from our recruiting center from the Army and asked me to call Mayor Torres immediately in Fort Benning. So when I called Mayor Torres, he told me, Lieutenant Rodriguez, come to Fort Benning immediately. We have here Mr. Musa, Mr. Flanagan, to give you your special communication training. So I selected a couple of guys. We all three of us went to Fort Benning, Georgia. We were giving an empty building inside the military base. Of course, I spoke English, but the other two didn't. So we had a, a Puerto Rican sergeant by the last name of Castro, all last name, to actually be the translator for the group. We spent about a month and a half or two months taking this communication training inside Fort Benning in uniform of the U.S. Army. Then we resigned to the commission and joined him in Central America. Wow. What was the Central American mission that you were involved in? We had the swift boat that we were operating in Central America. They were conducting raids against Cuban targets. Okay, right. And, right. and at the same time, they were promoting... They were promoting the assassination of, of Fidel Castro in Cuba. And a silencer was prepared and sent to Spain to be given to Major Cubelas in Cuba, who was supposed to assassinate Castro, with the full knowledge of Bobby Kennedy. I've got it. Yeah, I know that that went on for a while. Eventually, those missions shut down and those boats, they went to the Congo, right? Yes. Uh, when Che Guevara went yes, to the Congo. They, we had like two swift boats operating. Then we have some fast boats. We had one, two huge motherships of 200 and some footer. One who was anchored in Monkey Point, the naval base in Nicaragua. We had the, the center of intelligence. We had the center of communication in that boat. 
And the other big one was the one who will go around Cuba, towing these two swift boats to conduct raid operations against Castro. Mm, right. I had a really good interview not long ago with Jim Halls, who I'm sure you know about his time in the Congo with those swift boats. That right. was an episode a few weeks ago. Yeah, so in 1965, a... 1965, our operation was terminated by Johnson. Mm-hmm. And they cut the boats in two and they were flowing to the Congo and they were operated on the Tanganyika River. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Makasi is, uh, is an operation of the CIA that went from 1962 to 1966 uh, in the Congo. Mm-hmm. By the way, this last Saturday, I had our new museum in Hialeah Garden. The deputy chief of staff of, of President Felix from what they call now the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And she was so impressed when they saw that corner was dedicated to the Makasi and to the Congo that she called the president from there. And the president is going to come to New York of some visit. And they agreed that he was going to come to Miami to visit us at the museum to see that corner was dedicated to the Congo. Wow, that's fantastic. Is that is that coming up in the next few weeks or a few months or something? In December. December, December. Of this year. Okay. Yeah, that's wonderful. I still have not visited the museum myself because I came down in April of... 2021 for the 60th anniversary at Tamiami Airport, but I didn't go to the museum that day because everyone was at the airport already, but I'm definitely looking forward to coming in myself as soon as I can. Actually, we have outside an M41 tank, similar to the one who landed at the Bay of Pig that I got it from the Army. Then we got one original plane from Brother to the Rescue, a Skymaster, that was used to, to recover Balseros during that time. And then I was able to get, it took me five years to get it, a B-26 that was in Guatemala. It's the plane where all our pilots were trained in Retarule in Guatemala, an original plane. Hmm. It took me so long because it was in display by the Guatemalan Air Force in the area where they have the mechanics of the Guatemalan Air Force. So it took me three different ministers of defense to finally convince the president. Now we have that plane there. That Yeah, that just it's arrived good. fairly recently, didn't it? No, it arrived about a couple of years ago. Oh, a couple yeah, of years ago. Happened. Okay, good. Yeah, I saw some posts about it on the on the Facebook page. Right. That's wonderful. Yeah, you have a great collection there. I've seen it in photos only so far, but I'm looking forward to see it in person as well. Absolutely. We're looking forward to your, to your visit. Good. So this takes us up to kind of, you said 1966 was when the Mikasi operations ended. That takes us up to 67, which, of course, found you in Bolivia. So can you talk a little bit about how you ended up in Bolivia searching for Che Guevara? Sure. Now, let me tell you a little anecdote that happened before. In 1962, when I came back from Cuba in 1961, I continued to operate with the CIA going trips to Cuba back and forth in 1962. Then I actually married my present wife. This August will be 60 years marriage. Oh, wow. It was 60th anniversary. I had met my wife in Cuba when I was 14 and she was 17. And from the time I saw her, I told myself she's going to be my wife. Now, I was 14 years old at the time. Then after that, she came to school here in Virginia, and came to school in Pennsylvania. We wrote a few letters, and that was it. Then later on, when I was in, the, in Cuba, infiltrated, I went to visit her at home, and she wasn't there. Then in 1962, she finally came from Cuba. Within six months, we were married. Okay, We got married on the 25th of August, 1962. I told my wife, I'm going to leave the CIA. I want to go to a civilian life. We're going to make a life together. But let it be known if there is anything serious about overthrowing Castro, I will join that. If you agree to that, we get married, even though I love you dearly. You know, my mother cannot even stop me. So she made the mistake to agree to that. So we got married the 25th of August. 
here we go. I start working a company called Ace Letter Service uh, that made some propaganda for the hotel during the, the season because at that time the Miami Beach Hotel only opened during the winter. They were closed during the summer. And then I was being paid $1 an hour. And then my uncle got me a better job in a company that had to do with meat and hamburger and all of these things at $1.35 an hour. So I started working in there. Here comes October. I get a call from Tom Klein from the CIA. And he asked me, he wanted to meet me after I finished my job in the parking lot of the Howard and Johnson across from the University of Miami. So after five o'clock, I drive in my little car with the parking lot. He was there with his big car. I jumped from my car into his car and he looked at me very seriously and I said, Felix, the Marines are going to land in Cuba and we need you. And I look at him very seriously and said, Tom, if the Marines are going to land in Cuba, what the hell do you need me for? You know, it's ridiculous. And he told me, well, you know how to operate a radio beacon. So we lie you to parachute behind a Soviet missile base near Santa Clara. So nearby, you can set up a radio beacon at a pre-located area we're going to give you so that our Air Force can hit with precision the air base or missile base. At the time, they didn't have the GPS precision equipment that we have nowadays. So I agree. So from there, I could not even call my wife. I was taken to a safe house and they sent an instructor to teach me how to do the three point of contact when you jump. So my only practice as a paratrooper was to jump from a table a little bit higher and try to hit the ground and distribute the weight uh, of my body in three different points. That was my training, okay? That day, I could not even pick up my wife downtown where she worked. She waited for two hours. Then she took a bus and went to our apartment. And that night, that's when President Kennedy declared the October crisis. So she felt, you know, she figured out that it had something to do with that. So after that failed, you know, because Khrushchev, the day I was really going to go and parachute into Cuba, that's the day that Khrushchev backed down and took all this boat back to the Soviet Union, and it was the crisis was terminated. So I, I was not with the job. That from there on, I continued to work with the CIA and then joined the army with Sardinia. So, how did you end up in Bolivia? In was it '67, or were you already there by the beginning of '67? No, no. Before, before that, after after all this thing with our team in Central America. In 66, I worked with the agency. They sent me to Venezuela train a set up a communication system for the CIFA, Service Information Forza Armada, the Armed Forces Intelligence Service of the Venezuelan Army. And also advised them the, the, what they call the Los Cazadores, which is like the Special Forces of the Venezuelan Army, who were at that time fighting the guerrilla that Cuba has implemented with Captain Ochoa, who later as a general was executed. He went there and in Venezuela with Cubans and Venezuelans, and they had a guerrilla warfare in Venezuela. So I went there to help them with communication. Then when I came back in 1967, that's when they actually came to Miami to select two people from 16 to go to Bolivia. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I've got it. And were you a CIA employee at this time? Were you still like contracting no, no, with them? At that time, I, I was only by, on the contract. Okay. I really didn't have any right to retire anything like that during that time. Okay, they just came to you when they needed you then, basically, which sounds like it was pretty awesome. Yeah, we, we were called principal agents. Okay, we had, you know, people called handler. It's only in the movies. You know, we didn't have handlers. Everybody called to the people who run agents, the handler. They were called case officer. They were the one who control all. The name handler is only used in the movies. So okay. we, I had a case officer who was running the operations against Castro, and he was the one who was controlling all. 
Then I got a call one day to meet this guy who came from Washington in 1967. His name was Larry Sternfield. He was pretty high in the agency from Latin America division. He came down interview 16 Cubans to take two to go to Bolivia. And the reason they were using Cuban, it was because it was a prohibition in Bolivia by Ambassador Henderson, the U.S. ambassador, who prohibited any U.S. citizen to participate in area of danger or combat. Because from 1966 and before, they were already advising from Vietnam. They were already advisors coming back in plastic bag from Vietnam. And they didn't want advisors coming back from plastic bag from South America. Mm. So okay. they didn't want to use any U.S. citizen in areas of danger. So we were not U.S. citizens at the time. We were, I was not even a U.S. resident. I was just a refugee. So coming back in a plastic bag was no problem. It would not be a big thing. There was no American being killed. That's why they selected us to go to Bolivia for that mission there. That's some cold-hearted calculations there. Yeah. That's so they selected to. I asked later on to Larry, you know, why he selected me. So I, he told me that every time after he finished an interview with one of the Cubans, he will tell him, if I select you, when will you be ready to be mobilized? And everybody would tell him, well, I need a few days, I need a week or two weeks, whatever. It was always some you know, a period of time to set up your things at your home, et cetera, et cetera. My answer to him was, well, if I have time, I take my car, <clears throat> I drive to my home in Miami, I pick up my clothes, I say goodbye to my wife, to my two kids, I come back and we leave. We don't have time for that. You give me the phone. I call Rosa and tell her I have to leave. And if we don't have time for that, let's go and give you her number and you call her and tell her I had to leave. And he told me nobody had told him that. That's why he selected me to go to that mission. That makes sense. So it was you and one other then out of the 16? Yes. yes another one that came with me uh, after we were selected, we went to Washington where we went to a safe house in Washington. We were briefed never seen about what the guerrilla were about. We were giving the names of the guerrilla, as much information about them as possible, you know, and then we came to Miami and then we were flowing from Miami. They were going to go to Bolivia. We were flowing to New York. In New York, they retrieved all of our true documentation and we were given that fake documentation that like we were born in Puerto Rico with another name. My name was Felix Ramos. Then with this new documentation, we boarded a brandy flight who was flying, stopping in Miami, and then went directly to La Paz. They told us not to be playing in Miami, but we got to Miami, and, and there was a problem with the radar, so we had to stay at the hotel in Miami. Then we flew straight to La Paz. Our case officer was waiting for us in La Paz. We arrived late, so they were in the hell of a hurry to take us because we had a meeting with President Barriento at his home. The two of us and the American who was coming, who was going to be our case officer. So we went to President René Barriento Ortuño, his home. We were told that, that we were expert in guerrilla warfare. Then we talked to the president and he gave us ID card from him, asking all the civilian and military authority to give all, all the, whatever we requested, they were supposed to uh, support us. And then they took us to the Ministry of Defense with General Ovando Candia, Alfredo Ovando Candia, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And he gave us a similar ID card from his uh, office, telling all the civilian and, and personnel and, and military personnel to give all the support that Captain, my name was Captain Felix Ramos, will request. All three of us were given the rank of Captain in the Bolivian Army for that operation. 
Oh, wow. And so what was the mission exactly like? Were you supposed to just locate and capture him or just gather intelligence on what was going on? Or oh, We were advisor to, to the different unit. Uh, before we arrived, there were about three or four Cubans that were assigned La Paz to advise the Minister of Interior in Intelligence, okay, Cuban origin. And then the two of us went to Santa Cruz de la Sierra, and then they had a special forces team commanded by Papi Shelton, uh, who was training a second ranger battalion uh, in counterinsurgency in an old sugar mill, abandoned sugar mill called La Esperanza. So first of all, we went there, we met Papi Shelton, and then they divided two of us. My friend stayed at La Esperanza and he was training intelligence team for the battalion. In my case, they assigned me in Santa Cruz to the headquarters of the A Division, who was commanded by Colonel Joaquin Centeno Anaya, and I was the personal advisor of the colonel and the head of intelligence with Major. So whenever they capture some document or something like that, I will fly in with the mayor to you know to see the documentation, exploit the intelligence of the documentation. And one time, for example, they had captured one guerrilla, Paco Jose Castillo Chavez, and he but they were holding him and we flew in in an Air Force plane from Bolivia. He and I went to interview the guy. And I was able to save his life, but they, they didn't keep any prisoner. They already had told the press that this guy was badly wounded. They were going to kill him and tell the press that he died from combat wounds. But I was able to secure his release to us for intelligence purposes with General David Lafuente, who was head of the army that I had met in dinner in La Esperanza with the commander of General Porter. And he was able to give us the prisoner who value. It was very, very valuable. He was the one who gave us the information how she would move around. Whenever shape moved from point A to point B, he divided his guerrilla in three groups, what they called vanguard, center, and rear guard. The vanguard had about four, five, or six guerrillas, and, and Paco gave us the name of all five and six guerrillas. She would be in the middle with the majority of the guerrilla, and then five or six other guerrillas was one kilometer behind him, called the rear guard. So in case there is an ambush in process, he would be able to maneuver in the middle and evade the army. So we had all of these names uh, given by Paco when in late September, there was an encounter by a unit commanded by a Bolivian uh, lieutenant. Uh, we were told to go to this little town called Pucará to wait for him. He had killed three guerrilla. He was bringing the three dead bodies to Pucará. So we went there and here about four o'clock in the afternoon, here comes Lieutenant Galindo with these three mules and on top of every mule was one dead body. One of them we recognized as Coco Peredo. He even had a driver license with him. He was the head of the, of the guerrilla on the Bolivian side. The other one was Mario Gutierrez Jardaya, who was a Bolivian doctor. And the other one was a Cuban at the time. We only knew like Miguel. Then later on, we learned that Miguel was Captain Manuel Hernandez Osorio. Paco was told us they were members of the vanguard. So when I interviewed Lieutenant Galindo, he told the guerrilla in the distance, I start preparing the ambush on top of the hill. And then the guerrilla surprised me. Actually, what he saw was Che Guevara's group, and the vanguard was already coming up the hill. So that verified that that was Che Guevara's group. So with this information, I was able to convince Colonel Centeno Naya to call the two weeks that was for graduation of the, of the battalion, who already had received the full training, to cut it short, to move it into the operational area. Because first of all, he told me, Felix, it's only two weeks for graduation, semi-coronel. In two weeks, we have no idea where Shea is. Right now, we know he's right there. So he cut the training and he mobilized the battalion immediately. There were four companies that were mobilized to the operational area. One stay in Valle Grande to be able to support the unit in operation. We 
with food, ammunition, and communication, all of that. One company was assigned to the Rio Grande, so the guerrilla could not move to the other side, was the responsibility of another region, Region 4. And then one company commanded by Captain Celso Torrelli, who later, he later became president of Bolivia, was sort of a, in support of the searching company commanded by Gary Prado. And that company was the last point where Che was seen. So they actually started the operation at the very beginning of October. It was a tremendous luck to be able to get shape, believe me. It only happened once in a lifetime. We arrived in, into the area of operation on the 1st of October. We started operating. And on the weekend, on that first, second weekend, who was the, it was October the 7th. And October the 7th was a Saturday, all right? I was installing some PRC-10 radio on three Bolivian aircraft, AT-6s, who had the capability of delivering 50 caliber machine gun and 2.75 rocket. But they did not have communication to communicate with the battalion in the ground, which meant they could not support uh, air-to-ground support because they could not talk to the battalion. So I borrowed three PRC-10 radio one next to each pilot of that plane so they would be able to talk to the ground troops and support them. So I was finishing the sir a plane, and it was uh, on, on the, actually on a Sunday, uh, on the 8th of October, when we received information that Papa Cansado, so the mayor came to me, Capitan, we have information from the operational area that the head of the guerrilla is captured and he's alive, wounded. I didn't know whether it was El Che Guevara or whether it was uh, Inti Peredo, was the head of the guerrilla on the Bolivian side. So I flew in the back of the second 86, and when we flew over the area, they told us that, that it was the foreigner. So we knew that Che Guevara was the one who was captured then, and we came back. Now, we could not give them air-to-ground support because they were very close. We were afraid of, of killing soldiers. They were fighting very close to each other. So we came back, uh, Colonel Centeno dispatched Lieutenant Colonel Celis, uh, the helicopter dropped him in the area to try to gather all Che's belongings so people long take them as a souvenir and try to interrogate him, and he came back. So that night we celebrated in, in a hotel in there with no electricity, with candles, and I asked the colonel if I could accompany him on the following day. It was, it was a Monday, October the 9th. So he talked to his officer and he told them that he was very grateful for everything that I do in helping them, being a Cuban, and he knew how much harm this guy had done to my country. They didn't mind he would take me with, with him the following day. So that's how I turned to fly with him on the helicopter. We left at 7 o'clock in the morning from Valle Grande. We landed next to where, where Che Guevara was at 7.30 in the morning. That concludes part one of my interview with Felix Rodriguez. Episode number 54 will cover more of the many different roles he played over the course of the Cold War. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, you can also listen right now to a bonus episode on my Patreon page, which contains more than 30 additional minutes of our interview. If you're interested in more Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram at Spycraft 101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. 
We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.